0: Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You are invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon.
1: This morning's scripture is from Luke 15 Verses 11 through 32. The Parable of the Lost Son. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, his younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to his servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found." So, the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. "'Your brother is back,' he was told, "'and your father has killed the fatted calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return.' The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I have slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing that you told me to. And in all that time you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, You have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: I was traveling abroad once in a country where I didn't fluently speak the native language. I was weary when I got off the airplane and into the cab, but a short while later I arrived at the hotel where I would be staying. As I walk up to the desk to check in, I reached in my pocket to take out my cell phone, which held my confirmation and reservation number, only my cell phone was not in my pocket. I had it out in the cab, which had already left, and it left with my phone in it. You could literally see my face lose any slight coloration it had as I went from really pale to nearly translucent. The people at the desk could figure out how to check me in without the confirmation number, but I wasn't sure I knew how to navigate the rest of my trip without my phone. It was an unfamiliar land on the other side of the globe, and also smartphones are expensive. I didn't embrace the thought of losing mine. I went to my room and began to use my computer to locate the phone and sent a ping to it so it would ding in the car. I sort of hoped maybe it was in the cab. that wasn't in the cab, but maybe it landed in a jacket pocket or in my backpack or something like that. No such luck. So I sent a message to the phone, identifying myself and reminding whoever would find it where I was staying, back at the time when you could do that without the phone having to read your face first. And a few minutes later I got a phone call back from the cab driver who spoke English better than I spoke any other language to let me know he had the phone. He was on his way back and he'll meet me at the circular drive in front of the hotel in about 10 minutes. He did and that cab driver got a pretty decent second tip from me. My cell phone was gone for maybe a total of 30 minutes. But under those circumstances and the stress I was experiencing, the absence of the phone probably took several days off of my life. I was so glad to have it back, not because of my typical compulsion around smartphone behaviors, but because it was a lifeline in a place that I did not know very well. My whole demeanor went from jet-lagged to hyper-stressed to absolutely celebratory in a very brief period of time. What I had lost had been found, and I know it's just a piece of technology and not as valuable as human life. Nobody was going to weep for me in my first world problem, but I bet several of you have experienced similar did-I-lose-that-thing-forever types of experiences and stresses about a device at one point or another. Regardless, I was still giving thanks to God above for helping a fella out. Jesus was telling stories about lost things. Why? Why? Well, it has to do with his audience. Jesus drew crowds that seemed to be almost polar opposites. Some of his listeners were professionally religious and part of an exclusive and sometimes judgmental group of influential elite. Others of his listeners were marginalized and pretty flagrantly acting against the teachings of the Hebrew scriptures. The religious elites really wanted Jesus to be on their side to show that they were justified in their judgment. The ones referred to as sinners wanted Jesus to be on their side to show that they are justified in their indulgent behavior. Both groups considered themselves to be in the found category. But the Pharisees, the religious elite, didn't really understand why Jesus would bother to seek out and befriend notorious sinners. And Jesus was about to show them all, religious hypocrites and notorious sinners alike, that they were, in fact, more lost than they even knew. And that leads to our first lesson this morning. Jesus is committed to finding what's been lost. Jesus is committed to finding what's been lost. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Jesus begins to tell a story, first about a man who lost a sheep, And the sheep was found. When the man arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I've found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. He tells a story about a woman who lost a coin and turned over her whole house to find it. And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors to say, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. As a means of getting his listeners wrapped into his lesson, Jesus tells about a situation that maybe people have experienced before. Lots of folks at Jesus' time have lost a coin. Plenty of people during Jesus' time had sheep wander off on them. Money didn't grow on trees then either, and sheep was precious to the one who was tending to them and profited off of their presence in the fold. But Jesus takes these stories a couple of steps further. The first inclination when you lose something is usually to seek it out. You spend some time looking for the thing, and if it starts to take a while, you maybe start doing a bit of a mental cost-benefit analysis of the time and effort you're investing in finding a thing versus the value of a thing that's lost. The seekers in Jesus' story take no such pause. The one with the sheep never paused to consider the risk to the well-being of the others in the flock when it came to finding the one that wandered off. That sheep was missing, the man was going to find it, no pros or cons were weighed. The woman who lost the coin doesn't stop to think about the time she's spending and the effort of upending her house that may actually require more of her than the face value of the coin. It doesn't matter. She lost the coin. She's going to find it. That's one level of extravagant seeking. But then Jesus takes it to the next level, the celebration. The cost of the party when the lost thing is found is probably greater than the face value of the lost thing. It doesn't matter. There's no equation there's no profit and loss spreadsheets. What's lost is found, and so they threw an extravagant party. The audience would probably already be scratching their heads at this extravagance of Jesus' kingdom stories. But then he starts a story that will absolutely blow their minds. And that leads to our second lesson. Some become lost by desiring gifts without the giver. Some become lost by desiring gifts without the giver. Man had two sons, Jesus tells the younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. I've seen prodigals come from the most ideal upbringing and children of great integrity come from the most horrible conditions. We always like to imagine that kids that run off to do bad, they are the result of environments that would create that or maybe the result of poor parenting. You might be able to trace some behaviors back to the families and environments somehow and sometimes, but I hope we all understand that there are no prodigal-proof formulas. Prodigals just happen. These kids who run off to sow wild oats happened in Jesus' time. They still happen today. I don't mean to imply that there is no agency on anybody's part. I just don't want to make it easy for anybody to say, well, if only her family or his family had fill in the blank. That's definitely not why Jesus tells this story. So right out of the gates, we basically have this younger brother telling his father, I'd like it better if you were dead. I'd like it better if you were dead. Then I'd have your money, but not you. Can we pretend like that's already happened? You just give me your share, my share and I'll leave, okay? Cash me out and then you're dead to me. According to the customs of Jesus' time, sons could receive their inheritance before a parent's death when they got married for the sake of taking responsibility for a new family, Birth order mattered. In this case, there's historical reason to believe that the older brother would receive two-thirds of the father's estate and the younger brother would get one-third. Keep in mind, this young man is not going off to start a family. He was probably praying against starting a family, but he was going on a bender. We're going to spend time with the character of the father in a couple of weeks, but Jesus is clear that the character of the dad in this story is accommodating, patient, and extravagantly generous. He just heard his kid tell him, Old man, your money and my short-term pleasure means more to me than your life and our relationship. But it was the younger brother who would soon be wasting away. The story goes on. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About this time, his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Now, some see the normal process of adolescents forging identity apart from their institutions and families as a prodigal experience. There are ways that teenagers are going to test boundaries and separate that may leave some scars, but they won't always burn bridges. The younger brother was pouring gas and lighting matches. This scripture describes what he was doing as wild living, and the translation basically comes down to this man throwing away his substance by living like a riot. He traded his sense of worth and dignity in order to have access to ever-fleeting good feelings, and his highs were harder to get around the same time that the money was running out. Most of us have met prodigal sons and daughters. Some of us have been prodigal sons and daughters. Some will make a run for it first and then fall into addiction, shame, or poverty. Some fall into addiction, shame, and poverty and then run later. Why? What causes people to run? Well, the answers are as different as the person. Some run to get away, some run from the shame, some run from the glaring eyes of judgment or their own insecurity. Most of the time, people carry whatever baggage led them to ruin before running, and some will finally run to a point that it makes it very difficult to come back. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a situation where you thought to yourself, I'm too far gone, I'm too ashamed, too embarrassed. There's no going back, not now, not after what I've done. Even if they let me back, they'll just make me feel terrible about it. No way. There's just no going back. Our third lesson this morning is this. It's the welcome more than the walk that restores what was lost. It's the welcome more than the walk that restores what was lost. Jesus continues the story. When the younger brother finally came to himself, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am, dying of hunger. This basically says he accessed his sober and reasonable mind. He experienced an honest and raw assessment of where he is. Maybe he even caught a glimpse of who he is instead, the man and not the mistakes. Maybe he just remembered his heritage and pictured for a moment an alternative reality to the one he was living. Some refer to this as a moment of clarity. Amidst the blinding weight of shame and distraction, there is an honest assessment. Jesus goes on with the story. The younger son saying, I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Imagine for that entire walk, this young man was practicing his apology. I'm not worthy. I don't deserve a place in your home. I'm not a son. Make me a servant. Just help me out of this mess that I've made with my life. In June of 2010, the band Mumford & Sons released a banger of an album that included the song Roll Away Your Stone. And they had a very powerful lyric in there. You hear, it's not the long walk home that will change this heart, but the welcome I receive with the restart. This younger brother had to have enough sense of self and inner worth to begin walking home, but the entire walk was filled with a voice reinforcing his deficits and his fault. The walk was important, but it was the embrace he was about to receive from his father, who had been scanning the horizon and who rushed out to greet him. The father said to the servants, quick, Bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but yet he is now found. And so the party began. The younger brother looked and smelled like he had been hanging out with swine because that's exactly what he had been doing. Before this guy could even begin to ask for a servant's position, his father interrupted him and put on the garments which marked him as a member of the family and covered up his shame. The same son who would rather have seen his father dead was received himself as though he had risen from the grave. And this was definitely a better party than any of the parties that he had thrown when he was indulging with his father's inheritance. Because in this moment, he was surrounded by absolutely unconditional love. Heaven celebrates like that when lost people are found. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. In Luke chapter 19 verse 10, He explains his purpose, for the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. That celebration for the runaway son never stops. It's still happening, whether we're happy about it or not. And next week, we'll spend some time with the older brother who refused to celebrate this homecoming. But today's look at the younger brother, the runaway son, is just a snippet of the story. As with so many of Jesus' parables, the story goes on in our lives as Jesus invites us to determine how the story ends. We don't know what that younger brother does with the welcome he receives, but he's received with a welcome. Several years ago, I heard a story of a couple of guys who were riding on a train back when that was a more common form of transportation. One of the men planned to use his travel time to get some work done, but there was a young man who was sitting in a seat near him that was visibly upset about something. So the first man set aside his work and said, excuse me, you seem troubled. Do you need to talk about something? Is there any way I can help? You could tell the young man was weighing the risk of sharing his story against the benefit of getting whatever help this seatmate had to offer. So after a little while, the younger man responded, well, here's the short version. I had a terrible argument with my parents years ago, and I left home. As I left, I swore out loud to never, ever come home again. I have not talked to my parents since that day. I was mad because I was sure that they were the meanest people. I'd seen a lot of life since then, good and bad, lots of bad. Well, we're all getting older, and I realize I've been a fool. I want to see them again while I still have the chance. So anyhow, I wrote them a letter and asked if I could come back home. I told them I would be coming home on this train. The tracks run right next to the edge of their property, so I asked my folks to give me a sign that it was okay, that it would be okay for me to come home. They think they can forgive me and welcome me home. I told them to hang a white handkerchief by the tree out by the railroad tracks so that I would know I was welcome. If I see a white handkerchief in the tree, I'm going to get off the train as it comes into the station. But if I don't see it, I'm just going to keep going to the next destination. I'm a little bit nervous. To be honest, I'm really nervous. I really want to see that handkerchief, but now that we're close, I'm afraid to even look. The other man was listening and clearly taking it all in, and he said, I understand why you're nervous. Going home can be very hard, especially when you don't know if you're even welcome. How about this? You can close your eyes. I'll be your lookout and tell you what I see, okay? And the younger man agreed. Just about a mile from that tree, the young man closed his eyes and the other man was saying a prayer that he would at least see some small white handkerchief hanging by that old tree by the railroad tracks. And then as the train was coming close, the man's eyes grew wide. He started tapping on the young traveling neighbor and said, open your eyes, look. Not out the window, they saw every pillowcase, sheet, handkerchief, napkin, pretty much everything close to white that they could tie, not only covering that tree from top to bottom, but every, every sort of growth, the handkerchiefs and claws were tied to anything nearby. They didn't want their son to miss their response. He was welcome home. I'm going to offer an invitation. If you have a prodigal in your life, I believe that God is moving heaven and earth to bring about restoration. There's a reason to hold on to hope. I'd like to join you in prayer. You don't have to give me details or names, but if you know of a a younger child, a runaway or a prodigal who may feel like they burned too many bridges to come home, would you let me know somehow this week? Maybe send an email or give a call. And for each person, I will add a white cloth to these trees to represent our prayers to the Lord who still seeks and saves those who are lost. Just to let the prodigals know that in Christ's love, they're always welcome home. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you that in our times of running, you have sought us out. Lord, you may not have chased us down, but you have watched the horizon for us to come to ourselves and to take those steps back to you. God, We pray that as we are weighing whether or not it is worth our effort, if we will even receive welcome that outweighs the judgment we face, that you would remind us that awaiting us is a kingdom celebration, that we will be clothed in garments that remind us we are a part of your family, that we have been claimed with a deep love, And Lord, whether or not other people join in that celebration, we know that all of heaven rejoices when one who is lost is found. We thank you for that. We thank you that it's made possible through Christ. We give ourselves in gratitude. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen.